My moral compass is not skewed by my politics. It's the other way around. My politics is informed by my moral compass. And that's a viewpoint many might agree with, but never thought about. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Here's an important topic that never gets covered. How to think about politics and how should we think about politics? And what I and a lot of philosophers and a lot of ethicists believe is that politics should be downstream from principles and not the opposite. So when you say downstream from principles, are you implying that principles aren't a target that we currently focus on? No, we go the other way. We already have political beliefs. Or maybe it's not even political. It's more like tribal. We join a team and then we toe the line on whatever beliefs those are. And then from there, we build our principles off of that. And the way it should be is we should already form our principles. And then from there, figure out, okay, what politics best describes these principles? So when you say that we should form our own principles and ethics, at what point does it make sense to do it? What age would you say is best? It's something that's always becoming. It's never a fully finished thing, but it's never something we think about independently. We always think about it in connection to something else and something else that we didn't necessarily choose, but we got indoctrinated into. Meaning a lot of times we didn't pick our politics. We inherited it from our family. And the same thing with religion. We didn't pick a religion. We inherited it from our family. And so from there, then we never really had to think about what are my principles? What are my form of ethics? It's more like they told me what it is. And I said, okay. And so what happens is we lose out on these formative years where we're supposed to develop who we are as individuals and what we believe in and what are our principles or what are the things we believe are morally justifiable? What are our ethics? So I know we live in the U.S., but is this problem necessarily a nation issue or is it something global? I think it's a human issue. I think it's all across the world. So in your opinion, is there any one country that gets it right or is it something everybody needs a refresher on? There's no nation that gets it right. It's more of an era, like maybe ancient Greece or ancient Rome or ancient China. We have to go back prior to political tribes where people were forming their principles and everybody was like, well, this is a way to think about things. And another person was like, well, this is another way to think about things. And everybody was starting to think about how do I think about things? And I think we'd have to go back in time when people had to actually think about their principles. It doesn't mean they didn't have tribes, but their tribes were their family or their clan or their village or maybe just people of the same region, but it wasn't based on ideology. Becoming tribal, not because of physical things like genetics or land, but because of ideas, that kind of came later. And I think that was good 
in some ways because it gave us a lot of new ideas we wouldn't have come up with on our own, but we became too reliant on it and never had time to think about, wait, what is it that I really believe? Because politics wasn't invented to be an end-all. It was always supposed to be a tool for ethics. And what is the ethic? I think ultimately, if we had to boil it down across all the different times and eras and people, it could be broken down into increase human happiness and decrease human suffering. Now from area and place, who you consider human might have been more limited. Maybe you didn't mean it universally. Maybe you meant it more tribally, but it was generally that framework. All that changes is who you mean that to be. So right now, if you ask most good people, they'd probably say increase happiness for everybody. And that's my belief. That's my personal ethic. That's my personal principle. So whatever I believe in politics then comes downstream from that. It's not like, oh, I want to be left or right or Republican or Democrat, which are the political parties in the U.S. To me, those are the principles that matter to me. And so a lot of religions don't necessarily align with that. And a lot of politics doesn't align with that. So I have to then pick politics and policies that I believe align with my personal principles. That means I have to do a little bit more studying than others. But shit, as an individual, I should be able to think my own thoughts. Every time I study and form my own opinions is when I'm becoming a sentient being. If I just adopt whatever somebody else says, then I'm no different from a programmable robot. So it sounds like what you're describing is very utilitarian ethics. Would that be correct? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, even ethics, we use it like we know what that means, but it actually means something very specific. And there's three branches of ethics. There's consequentialist, which is basically utilitarian. There's non-consequentialist, which is basically deontology. And the third is virtue ethics. And believe it or not, Virtue ethics is the one that we rely on most, but it's probably the least reliable form of ethics. Meaning if I base my decisions on this system of ethics, will I always end up doing the right thing? And right thing meaning least amount of harm done? It's very unreliable. And now, even out of these three, the focus for me is about common good. It can't be just something that benefits me. It should be also something that benefits the most amount of people, the common good approach. So I tend to be utilitarian, but that also means I'm utilitarian, not as in the Ayn Randian self-interest, fuck everybody else way, but more as common good, most amount of good things happening to people. But increasing human happiness is very utopian. We're not even at that point yet to increase human happiness. We have to start at the bottom, which is just, let's just start with decreasing human suffering. Because one of the best ways to increase happiness is to reduce suffering. Now, when suffering is properly reduced, then we can work on more things to increase happiness. And it doesn't mean that we can't work on them in tandem, but the primary emphasis for me in my political beliefs, which is downstream from my principles, is that job number one is reducing suffering. So you brought up Ayn Rand, and if I recall correctly, she had a very egoist approach where you should always be focused on self-interest, and if it benefits the group, then that's great, but if it doesn't, 
well, fuck it. Yeah, because she wasn't somebody that believed ethics should be the primary focus of principles. Her principles were based on something else, which is doggy dog, not even survival of the fittest, because survival of the fittest means survival of the fittest tribe. So it's not like a lion is a sociopath where it only wants to live at the sacrifice of all lions. It wants to make sure all lions live by making sure that the genes keep promulgating. Yes, that sometimes means they fight with each other and kill each other, but ultimately it's survival of the species. Whereas she's doing something very unique in that it's survival of the individual. So if that means me versus killing the whole planet, she'll pick herself over everybody else. And she thinks you should think that way also, which is some kind of principle. It's a sociopathic kind of principle, but that's her principle. That's not the one I follow. And it's not the one I suggest other people follow because if everybody did, our world would look a lot like the movie Mad Max. And for some people, that is their utopia. They wish they live in a world like that. I don't. And the problem is most people don't, but they will align themselves with people who want a Mad Max world misguidedly because they didn't think about their own principles because they just are part of that tribe or that team, even though they don't necessarily agree with their principles. They're like, hey, would you really want to live in Mad Max? They'd be like, no, but these are my buddies. So I'm just going to go with them. They don't really think about that. They just think, this is my team. This is who I identify with. I haven't really thought about what the consequences of that is, what kind of world that looks like, and also what my own principles are. And if my principles are in conflict with the political party that I affiliate with. So they're more or less useful idiots. There's probably very few people who have those types of beliefs or principles, but they need a lot of people to get this movement going. So they have no problem bringing people in that aren't true believers, but are there misguidedly. So here's my question for you then. Useful idiots for who? Who do you think they are useful idiots for? The billionaire class. They have the money to buy them, but they don't have to buy everybody. Sometimes it's the corporate lobbyists and other times it's just people who don't know any better and they can't think for themselves. So how do you think they're able to get them on their side? More or less the way people are influenced by day-to-day decisions, advertising, lobbying, making sure that they come up with data that they cherry pick. But how would you get that information to people? How would they see it? Like, how would I know what lobbyists are doing, me as just a regular person? How would I see that in my real life? So I would say for you to see it in your everyday life, it would be something that gets plastered all over the news, whether it's ads that are run, facts and figures that are projected on a network that you tend to watch, or even tidbits that you want to share with your friends like memes. So for that kind of information to get onto the news shows, not only do I need money, but I have to properly allocate that money. And that means I have to control advertising. So for me to control information on a show means I am an advertiser, or there's enough advertisers like me, which advertising is always going to be big companies owned by rich people. And they're going to tend to have a lot of the same principles, which might be self-interest driven. And then I could put pressure on people to report the news that I want them to report. It's not that I necessarily write the script, but it is understood. Or sometimes I'll say something where 
if you report this or I didn't like what you reported, I'm going to pull myself out as a sponsor. And that's what it all boils down to is sponsorships and advertising and money in the news. For them to report the news and stay on air, they need advertising money because that's the model we have right now. So advertisers have a lot of say in how the news is going to be covered and reported. And so to your point or to what you're exploring, that is initially the way that people's conceptions of reality and the world and what exactly is happening has been controlled by big money. It's not necessarily this conspiracy. It's just a feature of how advertising and corporations work. You watch a TV show, like let's say you watch a show about doctors. It's always portrayed as if every patient, even a homeless person, has unlimited money. So in the show, they could always get whatever treatment they need done. They'll fly people in. They'll 3D print organs, everything. Why? It's assumed they all have perfect, best insurance coverage. Or in this utopian world, there is no such thing as insurance. It's just all somehow fully paid for. Why? Why can't these doctor shows ever talk about insurance? It's because their advertisers don't want them to talk about insurance. And that's why it's not going to be covered. And that's just not for fictional TV shows. That's everything that requires advertising. So an example of that would be someone like Dave Rubin, where he was a former progressive turned quote unquote classic liberal, where he explores a lot of libertarian and right wing ideas that he previously were against. And it just goes to show you with enough money and influence, you can get people to say and think what you want them to. Are you saying he has corporate sponsors? He is sponsored by the Koch brothers. A lot of these YouTube shows that are sponsored by big think tanks, foundations, it doesn't necessarily have to be a company like Kellogg's or something. It could be a nameless company that just wants to promote certain ideas. They straight up come off like educational shows, like a how-to guide on how to think this ideology. Watch my show. Watch Prager University. Watch the Rubin Report and understand classical liberalism or understand conservatism. But they're not the news. They're not talking about areas that are getting bombed and all the human suffering, going back to what I was talking about with ethics and principles. It's not a show about ethics. It's not a show about politics that's downstream from ethics. It's about this is the type of thinking you should have. Whether it agrees with your principles or not doesn't matter. Join my tribe because here's the other tribe and this is how they suck. And so this is why you should join my tribe. So they make this adversarial comparison to recruit people, but you shouldn't be recruited into a type of political thinking. Like I said, it should all come downstream from your principles. And if you feel like your main principles are based around ethics or about the common good, then really think about that. Then how would that look in your everyday life? How would that look in the type of politics you follow and believe in? Because that's the only reason you should care about politics, not for tribalism, but as a tool to do effective good or as a tool to implement your type of principles. So what's one of the most tangible ways to measure human suffering? I think death. That is the easiest and most objective way to look at human suffering. Are people dying? Where are they dying? 
And before we get into sob stories, we don't even need to go there because those things are important too. But historically, and even still to this day, the primary way we kill people is war because war's purpose is to kill people. You can't compete in killing with something that's only meant to kill. War's job is to kill people. Kill the enemy, yes, but that's what it's supposed to do. Anything else that kills or has people die as a byproduct won't be able to compete with that. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care about those things. But for me, I have to put things into priorities and war is my number one priority. So my type of politics then is no war unless Hitler or Pearl Harbor. And I'm evidence-based. I get it. It's plausible to believe that you could go and do something and that prevents more harm. But the evidence keeps showing no. The more we go around and do world policing, the more we cause more harm, not only to them, but to ourselves. And to ourselves, I mean to the U.S. Just because it sounds like it makes sense doesn't mean it does. So I used to think that made sense. Just like I thought telling people facts and figures made sense into changing opinions. But evidence shows those things don't work. And so when I'm faced with new evidence, new facts, I have to change my opinions. And so, yes, it did sound plausible that if we went around policing everything, things would be better and more peaceful. Evidence shows that doesn't work. Then I have to change my opinions. And I think it's better not to intervene with war. And I think war in general just causes more human suffering. So this is why in my political thinking, I'm against the industrial military complex. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a military. As a martial artist, my belief is that we do need defense, but it's supposed to be self-defense. We're not supposed to go around picking fights with everybody. Then that makes us the bully. Then if they fight back, they're the ones doing self-defense and I'm the attacker. The way I think about politics doesn't always even align with the Democrats. Because you look at the Democrats post-Reagan and they tended to be more hawkish, more war. And you go back actually even before then to Vietnam and they tended to be that way also. That's why I tend to be left of liberal. Actually, I would say most Democrats, if you ask them about war, they don't have my belief of no war unless Pearl Harbor or Hitler. They might be more ambivalent. Like, I don't know. I mean... If our leaders say we need to go to war, I guess that's the right thing to do. They're not necessarily thinking about lessening human suffering. They'll just toe the line. I don't care what you call it. You could call it left or right. Because those are all names that we just came up with. You could call it Republican or Democrat. I will tend to lean to whatever side wants the less war. Whatever side wants less human suffering, that's where my politics will go, which is like I said, informed by my principles. I like that you brought up the military-industrial complex because if I recall correctly, that was coined by Eisenhower, who was a Republican, and in his penultimate speech, he warned us about the military-industrial complex and what it would lead to. Yeah, and you look at George H.W. Bush, and even though he took us into the Gulf War, which I don't like, but it was quick and then we left. He didn't try to have a perennial war or an infinite war, whereas his son, Dick Cheney, or Bill Clinton, and later on, even Obama, implemented a foreign policy that was a marriage of neocon and liberal interventionist. 
where let's interfere with everybody at all times. So Paul, let me ask you something. When you were a kid, did you care about politics? No. Most kids don't. And actually, I don't think kids should. They shouldn't get into politics that early. Because we start forming these politics before we've ever had a chance to ask ourselves, wait, what are our principles? Before you ever got to ask or wonder or grow as a person in that way, you were already recruited. So now that we're of age where we can make a difference, where our politics does matter because we can vote, we don't know why the hell we believe what we believe. And our political beliefs may not actually help the people we actually care about helping. So if we skip that whole part of developing your principles first, then of course hypocrisy is going to abound because you're going to have principles that are in conflict with your politics. So of course, when you talk to a lot of people about their politics, it sounds completely incoherent because there is no unifying principle. And that's why political talk is so frustrating because they never have a unifying thought or idea or theme or principle that ties the whole thing together. So would you say an example of that would be people who lean right, who are fiscally conservative, but who still believe in gay rights and abortions? Yeah, you used to see that a lot more, but now you see people kind of placating to the Christian right. So you see a lot of libertarians now, because that's what you're basically describing, libertarians who are fiscally conservative, socially liberal. But now you're seeing them toe the party line of the Christian right who are taking over. People thought with the rise of Trump, it would be the end of the Christian right. But in fact, they've only gotten stronger. You know, alt-right was a very useful term because it meant alternative right or the weirdo gonzo right. Like basically saying it's not the same conservative party of your grandparents who listen to country music. They're weirdos, they're gamers, they're Renaissance fair kids or whatever. But now we can't use alt-right for that anymore because we just only mean it to mean white nationalist. But whether alt-right is just used for white nationalists or not, that type of weird right still exists. The ones who want to smoke pot, who don't listen to country music, but listen to EDM and watch anime. And, you know, a lot of the things we're into also, they don't have a name anymore. So I'll just call them the Portlandia, right? If you've ever been to Portland and you've seen the right wing there, that's it. It's the Portlandia, right? You'll see right wingers over there who are trans, who are homosexual and staunchly right-wing, you'll see the whole gamut of what the Portland motto is, right? Which is keep things weird, keep Portland weird. That doesn't just apply to the left. That also applies to the right. And that is the right of the internet. But my point is, is that a lot of that Portlandia right, you see them having to toe the line of the Christian right. So reading a lot of message boards, I could see that they're in dissonance. They're like, well... Yeah, I mean, I don't really believe that people shouldn't have the right to abortion, or I don't really believe that homosexuals should be discriminated against, but I hate the liberals so much that whatever, if that's our party line, then I'm just going to go with it. So it's very much voting against their self-interest or best interest. I would say it's more like sleeping with the enemy to hurt your bigger enemy. So they hate the liberals so much It's like being a hyena and joining the lions, which are natural enemies, just so you could hunt 
you know, some other species together. But if you ever watched Lion King, what happens? The hyenas ate Scar. So that could only last so long also. So it's very much cutting your nose to spite its face. Exactly that. Another great example of that is the environment, where the environment is going to shit, but people aren't thinking about their principles or they're putting aside their principles for their politics. My party doesn't care about environment. I kind of do, but I'm going to go with whatever my party says. And they say we don't care about it, so whatever. I got to own the libs. Or even human rights, the same deal. So to give you another example of Portlandia, right? I saw this guy at a right-wing rally. He was holding a sign that said, I love my trans son, but I also love my AR-15. And so for him, he's willing to align with something that goes against the human rights of his son because he loves his AR-15. It's to what you said, cutting the nose to spite your face. It's giving power to a group that'll discriminate against his son just because you feel like the other party is against your AR-15. That's so weird because the son is a living, sentient being. Your son is your blood. And the gun is an inanimate object. How can you love something like that more than something you've created? And he could have gone the other way, where he could have been at a left-wing rally and said, I love my trans son, but I also love my AR-15. He could have just as easily done that. But I think for him, it depended on what team he was recruited to first. Either way, he's going to be an outlier. But he decided, I identify with this more, or this is the party that recruited me first. And with that said, there is a huge faction of left-wing gun owners. There's even a socialist gun owners and socialist gun rights movement in the U.S. You could easily find a tribe on the left that also likes guns as well. So do you think the right just has better recruiting tools or they're just better at identifying these things earlier? I don't know if it's necessarily about recruitment. The hypocrisy isn't because of necessarily better recruitment. It is that also. That's part of it. But ultimately, if you never know your principles, you're going to do things against your principles because you didn't know them in the first place. So basically, you will see hypocrisy if you didn't know what your principles were. Or politics is not downstream from your principles. Then you're never going to know how that coin's going to flip. Is it going to flip in a way that matches your principles or is it not? You don't know. Because you're not thinking about which way it needs to land to conform to your principles. You're trying to conform to your party. And it's not just the right. You see it on the left also. When I say the left, the left isn't a monolith. It's much less of a monolith than the right is because when you're winning, and you're doing good, it's more willing to forgive or ignore differences. Whereas on the left, there is this divide between the leftists and the liberals. And even among the liberals, there's disagreements between the moderates and the social justice warriors. And on the leftist side, you're seeing disagreements between different types of leftists, which might be more anarcho or socialist. And even there, Marxist socialists or utopian socialists. So even within a sphere of thinking, you will see hypocrisy. You might have joined a Marxist group that really wants a big government, 
when your principles might be more anarcho, where you don't want any centralization of power, not to private companies and not to governments. So you tend to lean more anarcho, but you ended up in this tribe because you didn't think about your principles. Or you ended up as a liberal and a lot of the candidates you support take a lot of corporate money, or they tend to be more hawkish when it comes to war. That might go against your principles, but that just ended up being your tribe. So you'll see a lot of that same hypocrisy on the left and the right. You're always going to see hypocrisy if people don't know what their principles are and don't align their behaviors and their actions to any principles. Then it's completely like the Joker. You don't know how it's going to end up. Everything you do is going to be incoherent. And that's part of philosophy. A lot of people say they have personal philosophy. What separates personal philosophy from academic philosophy is for it to be academic and taken seriously, it has to be coherent. It doesn't have to stay coherent to a principle I believe in or I agree with, but it has to stay consistent to some form of principle versus personal philosophy, which people just make up as they go, which is convenient to whatever situation it is. So their principle might contradict their principle from five minutes ago. Their philosophy changed from 10 minutes ago. It's never consistent and it's never coherent. And you can't run the world on something so inconsistent because inconsistent is worse than something that's consistently always one way. It's like taking a multiple quiz test and it's just A or B. If I put B all the way down, then there's a good chance that I got half the answers right. If I arbitrarily go back and forth and change my answers from A to B, there's a chance that I got a lot of them right, but there's also a huge chance that I got all of them wrong. It's much less reliable than picking all B, but probably the best way is understanding what the test is and what all the right answers are, and then picking all the right answers because you understand the subject. And you're going to be consistent to the subject because you understand it. It's like, okay, I understand math. So then I understand what all the right answers are. And I'm going to stay consistent to math and especially not to my emotions. So it almost sounds like when you describe being inconsistent or contradicting yourself, it sounds very similar to virtue ethics. Would that be correct? Understanding the system and applying logic is utilitarian ethics. So math. Picking the same thing every time in a multiple choice quiz would be deontology. This is called non-consequentialist because the consequences don't matter. You stay true to your principle. It's just always this way. For instance, you just never lie, even if it'll create more good. Deontology is absolute, regardless of context. Virtue ethics is where you just go willy-nilly, whatever feels right to you. Or since you don't have a system, you go by your tribe. What would be most virtuous to your tribe, which isn't always the most ethical? So being the most zealous member of a religion isn't always the best thing for common good, but it does make you virtuous to your religion. Sometimes it overlaps with morals, which is why people get confused. I said it's like the Joker. So it can land anywhere, including the side of right. But it's an unreliable way to do things because it's a different emphasis. It's not about the most good. 
It's about being the best or most virtuous member of a tribe. Virtue ethics has a different intent. So duty and obedience is the goal, not common good. This is why so-called good people can follow bad orders or fall in line with others in your tribe who do bad things. This is why virtue ethics is not something used by actual ethicists or in democracies, but it's often used in tyrannies and cults. The emphasis is being best member of a group, not best human being possible or most good person. Because good or common good is secular from any tribe. It's just most good for most people. That's it. Just as math is secular. It doesn't work because of a feeling or a tribe. It works because of the consequences. The proof is in the result. A different math for different tribes would be awful. Doing math based on your feelings and planes will fall out of the sky. And when you make ethics non-secular, when you base it around a tribe or your own emotions, is when it's no longer common good, when it's no longer reliable, but fascist. Meaning, in spite of the evidence or consequences, it's right because you said so, or your tribe or group said so, or your leader said so. That, by definition, is fascism. So, yes. Virtue ethics is where you'll probably see the most amount of hypocrisy. Would a good example of that be religion? Yeah, that's oftentimes the thing that people rely the most on. But it's also the thing that you're taught never to question. So if there are flaws in your ethical logic, you can't even bring it up or question it. Even if we avoid the bigger question of if God is real or if your religion is real or not, forget that. Let's just assume it is. But Are all your morals actually moral? You can't even question that part. Even if I agree with you that your religion is correct and God is real. Because no part of it can be questioned, not even the ethics. Because the ethics of it changes over time. What your church said five years ago is different from what it said 10 years ago versus 100 years ago. So it's constantly changing, but you as the individual are never allowed to question it. So it just kind of changes over time with nobody really at the driver's seat. Because they will change. These ethical beliefs will change. So shouldn't we allow it to change in a good way instead of just letting it happen randomly over the course of time? So you're sick of all this retconning. So explain retconning for people who don't know what that is. So retconning is essentially going back and fixing things as if it was always what you change it to. So a good example of this would be recently how we started saying Judeo-Christian values when that wasn't always the case. Yeah, that was FDR first started using that term. And he only used it to align Europe with America kind of as propaganda for the allies, where we have to protect the Jews, we have to protect the West, and we have to kind of create this alliance, which at the time served the purpose. But that belittles the fact that previous to that, Christians weren't always on the side of Jews. In fact, Christians often persecuted Jews. And then later on, we stopped saying Judeo-Christian. We just started saying Christian values again. And then only recently with Trump, we just started saying Judeo-Christian values again because of all the stuff we were doing in the Middle East. But yeah, that's a form of retconning too. As if we were always allies when oftentimes 
the biggest enemy of the Jews were the Christians. I would also lump in Catholics as well, because it used to be that Catholics weren't always liked in the U.S. because of their ties to Europe and the hierarchy. But when it came down to World War II and the fight against Nazism, it was a good way for FDR to unite the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Jews. And they said, we have to find a way to unite and fight the Germans. And you're seeing the same thing again with Trump, where he's aligned the Orthodox Jews, the Evangelical Christians, and the conservative Catholics, who all three didn't necessarily always get along. And something that wasn't even necessarily online during Bush, who was also another Republican. But it's something that Trump was able to do. So what is retconning? It's not only changing the past, but it's trying to create a consistency. Because whether you're consistent or not, consistency matters. So when you're inconsistent, rather than being seen as a hypocrite, you just change the past. But that's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to take the past as is and align your present with whatever your principles are. Instead of aligning with your principles, you change the past so that it aligns with whatever you're saying now. So you could say that's always been the principle. And in the case of FDR, he was a Democrat and he was retconning. So it's not like only one party does it. But if I'm downstream from principles, it also allows me to be flexible. Meaning, if it was the time of Abe Lincoln, based on my principles, I would have been a Republican. Or if it was the time of when Southern Democrats were the racists, I might have been a Republican. I'm not a Republican now because I don't care about the party names. I could give a shit. All I care about are my principles. Whatever that falls into currently right now, that's what matters. So if Trump all of a sudden became somebody that never would intervene, go to war, bomb all these people, and also did a lot of things for the environment or human rights, I'll become a Trump supporter tomorrow or right now, actually, if that became the case. But what I'm not going to do is retcon it and pretend like he is already those things just because he doesn't align with my principles. That's just stupid. And that's also dishonest to yourself. And that also means you're not a person of principles. I'm flexible. I don't care. Like tomorrow, if the keto diet was the best diet and all the evidence and doctors and scientists proved it, I'll go keto. If veganism was the best, I'll do that. If tomorrow I realized the party that wanted to reduce the most amount of suffering were the Republicans, I'll become a Republican because I'm not invested in these things. I don't give a shit. I'm not identifying as these things. This is not my family. This is not my tribe. Politics is not my identity. Just the same way as what diet I eat is not my identity. Even what martial art I do is not my identity. Being a gun owner or a non-gun owner, that is not my identity. I don't know why people have to make every fucking choice an identity. Like eating steak is not my identity. I'm not all of a sudden a carnivore. And that is a new form of diet that people are identifying with. I don't know why people always need some kind of new identity. It's like the people who talk the most amount of shit about identity politics still do identity shit. What did snowflake used to originally mean? It was a metaphor from the fact that all snowflakes are actually different. You'll never get two of the same snowflakes. So it was all about being individual and special, not about being sensitive. And that's what it originally meant. 
So in this way, everybody's a snowflake. Everybody wants to have some kind of identity and be like, oh, see, this is my identity. But everybody's picking the same identities. That's the problem. Nobody's becoming a true individual. It's like you tell a room, raise your hand if you're an individual and everybody raises their hand. If one guy didn't raise their hand in that room because they didn't think they were an individual, that's probably the real individual because they did something that everybody else didn't do. So in that same way, we're all looking for these identities to differentiate ourselves. And all we're doing is actually then just joining a tribe. And then all we're doing is just towing the party line. We've seemed to have lost a lot of that individuality because we never think about what our own beliefs are as an individual. We just start picking up shit. When you brought up different things replacing your identity, whether it's your diet or your political party, it seems to be with the rise of secularism, we just swapped out one for the other. So instead of identifying as a certain religion, we're going to identify as a certain political party or as a follower of a certain diet. And if it doesn't align with that viewpoint, I will go ahead and retcon it. So vegans will always try to pull out some data where it says, see, this is proof that veganism is the best way to live life. But if you counter them with actual claims, they just deny it. They say, no, 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 that's not real. Oh, that's fake news. Where'd you get that from? That doesn't exist. And you see this with racial identity. It used to be that white people didn't include the Irish and the Italians, and then they retconned it. And they says, no, 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 they were always white. Yeah, exactly. So instead of trying to change your past, or change the facts to match whatever identity or tribe you're a part of, stick to your principles, understand what they are, and then change your tribe or identity or politics or whatever based on what you're ultimately about. So if you're ultimately about what's best for the planet, you can't be rigid in any one thing. You can't be like, I'm only vegan, or I'm only this, or I'm only that. Whatever you are has to be willing to change based on whatever is best for the planet. And whatever's best for the planet might change or what you thought you knew might not have been correct or it might have been misguided. Like, yes, it's plausible that veganism may be the best for the planet, but there's also a lot of grasslands that you don't have to do anything on that could still raise animals, especially hurting animals. Now, if I turn that all into a farm, I've done a lot of environmental devastation. That new fact that you didn't think about before, let's say, does anything change? Well, if you're about the most amount of good for the environment, then something should change because your veganism should be downstream from your principles. But if not, you're going to change the facts or you're going to deny that fact or you're maybe even going to change your principles to align with veganism. And we're just using veganism as an example. There's a lot of things, but veganism, let's say a lot of times they pretend no pests are ever killed to protect crops. Well, if you're really about least amount of harm being done to, let's say, animals, then the most humane thing we should do is not only eat the vegetables, but also eat those pest animals that we kill to protect the crops. But we don't do that. And we don't want to do that because we think that's gross. Because of our discomfort of eating pests, we actually have to end up killing more animals and have that animal serve no purpose. Because that pest could have served a certain amount of protein need. But now we have to rely more on farming to get that same amount of protein. And a lot of people don't count that in. And when they find that in, they don't think about their principle of what's best for 
all animals or what's best for the planet, they figure out another way to say, no, that's actually more harmful. And it's almost like, do you want to be right or do you want to save the world? Do you want to be right or do you want to do what's right for the planet? And a lot of times people will rather be right than do whatever their primary purpose was or do whatever their primary principle was. Because arguments can be wrong, but people can be right. Meaning I could be right in my belief that I want to do the most amount of good for the planet. My argument for how to do that might have been wrong, but my belief is still just. So I just have to change my argument or come up with a new way to do this better. But people would rather have their arguments be right and they themselves be wrong ultimately. And heading into this topic, forget about diet. Just think about the environment and global warming. That's something we all care about. Even if you took the hardest core climate denier and you showed them the air in Beijing, you could just ask them, do you want that? You want to live in that? They'll say no. Because who wants to live in pollution? Who wants to live in that shit? So then why are you doing shit to go against your principle of not wanting to live in filth? And maybe it's because their love of corporations is so great that they're willing to deny that fact. I mean, even billionaires will get affected if the whole world dies. Even billionaires will die if the whole world dies. So it's not like billionaires don't have problems about going against their principles. They also get into the same fallacies that we do. It's just that they just have more money to do it, which means when they make a mistake or they go against their principles or they become a hypocrite, it has much, much more dire consequences. In particular, climate change, the recent winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, William Nordhaus, talks specifically about climate change and how it's proof that capitalism doesn't solve everything because there's no monetary incentive to protect the environment. And one of the things that he talks about is we need to enact some form of carbon tax because that's the only way it will prevent corporations from doing further damage. But without that in place and with deregulation, these companies can kind of go hog wild. Yeah, I think we discussed this before, but capitalism is about capital. It's in the name. So it's about increasing of capital, which doesn't always mean what's best for the planet or best for anything else. It just does that one thing well, just like war does that one thing well, which is killing people. And so you look at the 09 financial crash. The financial crash is not only bad for everybody, but it's bad for capitalism. But there was no incentives for capitalism to avoid that crash. All the incentives was to keep going towards that crash until it actually crashed. So the system is not self-correcting to keep itself alive. It's almost like a virus where sometimes the virus is so good, it'll kill the host. But that also means it'll kill itself. And that's how capitalism works. It actually works a lot better if the host planet keeps living, but it ultimately doesn't care about that. It's incentivized to keep going till there's nothing left, meaning It'll keep going up until it uses everything up. It's not meant to be circular. It's meant to be a linear line that goes only one direction until it doesn't. So it's not supposed to be infinite. A circle has no beginning or an end, but a straight line like a mountain keeps going up until it doesn't. So you can't rely on the system to fix everything. Either you rely on a new system or you change the system. 
Because obviously, if it's going to take us to a crash or it takes us to the host planet dying, then there's something wrong with the system. Then we got to change the system until it does the thing we want it to do. Just like politics, capitalism or any other system is supposed to be a useful tool for us. It's supposed to change and we're supposed to change it so it serves our needs. It's not supposed to be the other way where it's our master and we change our beliefs to serve its needs. It's not like we're all supposed to serve it until it kills the planet. Because ideas are only meant to exist to serve the people. We are not supposed to exist to serve the idea. Because the idea should ultimately serve a common good. And if it doesn't, then we need a new idea. These are all tools. Because they all exist in our heads. Because our brain is our greatest tool. And it's a tool that only exists to do good for us. We're not supposed to exist to do good for our ideas. We got it all backwards. We're serving the systems instead of the system serving us. It's like we're serving the hammer instead of the hammer being a useful tool for us to do shit with it. So when is capitalism ever a useful tool? Or when would you say capitalism is beneficial? This is where people get mixed up because capitalism can be beneficial, but it's beneficial as a byproduct, meaning it overlaps with things that are useful to us. But that's not why it exists. So it's had a lot of useful byproducts. But we always have to be aware that its intended purpose wasn't always to serve our need. As a matter of course, it ended up serving our need. But if it doesn't serve our needs anymore, then we got to change it or we got to trash it and start all over again. And it's going back to talking about religion. Let's say I'm a believer in religion X. Now religion X might have a lot of rules that overlaps with common good or lessening human suffering. But that's an overlap. That's a byproduct. It doesn't mean that that's what its intended purpose is. So for me to be a good follower of religion X means I have to do the right things for religion X. Being a good follower of religion X doesn't always mean I'm a good person. It might overlap with that, but it has its own separate independent goal which is ultimately about following the religion. It's not ultimately about doing the most amount of good or lessening the most amount of suffering. So people get confused because they just see the overlap. But when they see the times that it doesn't overlap, instead of course correcting and be like, well, I guess I can't rely on this for everything. They look at those gaps and say, well, no, then these must have never been really good. Yes, it goes against my principle of lessening overall human suffering, but maybe lessening overall human suffering isn't the best way to think about ethics. So it's completely backwards. Instead of the dog wagging the tail, it's the tail wagging the dog. And if you never knew what that saying was, that's what it means. It's this backwards ass way of doing things. Like I get it. Religion X can do a lot of good, but what if religion X gets into a position of power and a lot of people are getting killed or hurt? Then if my understanding of religion X is the most amount of good for the most amount of people, and I see all these people dying, then for me to be a good follower of religion X, I actually have to oppose religion X. For me to be an actual good person, which I believe this religion is about, then I have to be against the thing that's causing a lot of harm. 
And if that happens to be my own religion, then I have to be against my own religion. Those types of tough situations happen if you're a person of principle. Principle people can get into tough situations. Why? Because you're fucking standing for your principle. You're standing for something you believe in. You're not changing what you believe in or you're not folding your principle just to placate or conform to everybody else. You're not going to start saying that what's wrong is right just so you can conform. A principled person doesn't do that. So if I'm a Democrat and I see Democrats doing something wrong, then I will point it out. I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I've seen a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructors do something shitty. I call it out. If somebody did something fucked up in my family, I'll be the first one to call it out. Because if it's your family, you as a family member has to be the first one to call it out or do something about it. And even though we're going back to tribalism, one thing we're not adopting is that tribal justice where you were the worst critic of your own group. If somebody fucked up in your group or your family or your clan, then you punish them worse than some other clan or group would. And you don't see that moral courage anymore. So you don't see people, especially on the right, willing to call out something that's going wrong with their own party. But now you see a lot of young leftists who are calling out a lot of immoral things they're seeing in the Democratic Party. Nothing should be sacred from the criticism of your principles. Not your in-group and especially not yourself. Because principles exist to first examine yourself. And then your in-group or your tribe, and then everybody else. We just use it to point out how everybody else is a hypocrite. We don't use it to see if we're being a hypocrite. It's like learning about logic and logic fallacies. The first thing you're supposed to do, dummy, is to apply it to yourself and seeing if you're being illogical. But what do we do? We start arguing with people and look at all the ways that they're being illogical and call out their fallacies. And in doing that, we're only proving that we're even more illogical. So where would be a good place to start in developing your own principles? I think it starts best when you're young in middle school or high school, because it's naturally biologically happening. You're trying to figure out who you are as an individual. It's your most rebellious time because your brain is trying to be independent and sentient. That's a great time to start just asking yourself, what do I believe in? What do I care about? And for us adults, it's still not too late. How often do we just sit there with our own thoughts? Turn off everything. Turn off your phone, the internet, TV. Stop constantly hearing or listening to other people telling you what to think and just think for yourself. I do this every morning for about an hour. After I wake up, I just sit in my chair and think. Because it takes a lot of courage to examine your own thoughts and all the different things that you believe in and then even examine the things you've actually done. Because I don't think you need some textbook or some philosophy class to tell you that what you really believe in is lessening human suffering. I think you just need the time and space to think about it. And then having the courage to actually follow through with that and aligning everything else with that. Is it okay if you never find that person that checks off all the boxes? What person? Are you talking about a politician? Yeah, because if you want to enact change, you're going to have to rely on your elected representative and they might not always have everything you look for. They might be strong in 90% of the things you want, but not so great at the 10%. 
if you really want to be political and have political opinions, right now it's too easy to be political. And none of us are doing the hard work. If you really want to be political, you have to actually know about policies. Because when you say 90% agree, meaning you agree with 90% of their policies. So you can't just rely on them and their judgment on every policy. You have to form your own beliefs on every policy also. And so if a candidate or a politician or a representative doesn't do something that aligns with your principles, or there's a certain policy that they're going against your principles on, then that's when you let them know. You could call their office, you could write a letter because they actually have people that will take your call. And there's actually people who read those letters. Or you let them know through social media that their views on this certain policy you don't agree with. But that's the thing. People just want to pick other people. They're like, I'm a fan of this person and I don't want to know anything about policies. And it's like, I want to talk about politics without knowing anything about politics. A hundred percent of politics is about policies. So if that's what politics is, then what the fuck is going on right now? Because almost everybody who talks about politics knows 0% about policies. Then it's just tribalism and teams and basically the same way people follow sports guised as politics. Because the system we live in now, the political system is a represented democracy. It's not a direct democracy. That means partially it's about the people you elect, meaning you're relying on good faith of this person to enact the right things. But the other part is being educated ourselves on all the policies that are happening. So then we could one by one sometimes say, hey, this is something I care about. Even if it's just a few policies, you should have some opinions about them, especially if they're going the other way. So represented democracy doesn't mean 100% relying on our representative or the person we elected because there's still the democracy part of it. Part of it or 50% of it is relying on them and 50% of it is relying on our own best judgment about policies. Because right now, because we pay such little attention to policies, a U.S. citizen has almost no say in our foreign policies because we don't know about them. We don't know what they are. Whereas actually that is something in the past that people were more educated on. And so we would tell our representatives and we would start writing letters or we would make public what our views on certain foreign policies were. But that's the boring part of politics. We just like focusing on the political gossip. What did they say? What did they say? But what they say matters as far as reputation or how things appear. But what matters way more than that is what they actually do. And in government, actions are known as policies. So saying they're going to do whatever is nothing compared to actually enacting a policy that does whatever. It's like me saying I'm going to kick your ass versus me actually kicking your ass. There's a world of difference. The first, if I just say it and don't do it, then you never actually got your ass kicked. The second actually happens. And so we're focusing only on the shit people say and not on the things they do. And the stuff they do, the boring textbook kind of stuff, the stuff we can't learn from memes, but we actually have to read those stuffy political articles. That's where the real politics happen. They call it real politique. But the gossip mongers, they actually don't want you to know about policies. 
they want you to just care about candidates. They just want you to care about politicians. Why? Because if you only care about candidates, then they will take care of all the policies. And if it's no longer a represented democracy, there's no more democracy and it's just them doing everything, then that's when we get into fascism. Meaning we get no say in the policies. We just completely rely on them to do it. And if the politicians do everything without our say, even if we voted them up, it doesn't matter. If we have no say in the policies, then that is fascism. Meaning it's all run by authority, not by democracy. And so people who want fascism will, of course, want you to only pay attention to people and the gossip and not educate you on the policies because that would mean that they're promoting democracy. So that's another way to think about how you're being presented stuff. If you're only hearing about people and not policies, that tends to lean fascist. If you're hearing more about policies and less about gossip about people, that tends to lean towards democracy and freedom. Now, being single issue, single policy is an awful, awful way to be a voter. But with that said, at least there's something you care about. You're not completely leaving it 100% up to someone else to decide for you. But if you are going to be just about one policy, what's your principle? For a lot of people, their single policy is about abortion. But if your principle is about lessening human suffering or lessening human death, and we consider all aborted fetuses a life, war still kills more people. So if your main thing is about lessening death, then your main policy should be about anti-war, followed by making sure poor babies stay alive. Because there's still going to be way more babies that are living in poverty in the world. And then maybe third could be abortion. But for most people, it's more about, we were talking about virtue ethics, so it's virtue signaling. So duty and obedience is the goal. Being anti-war doesn't signal the right type of virtue or right type of thing that I want to signal to others. Maybe it even makes me seem like I'm weak or I'm a pussy. But who gives a shit how you look? It's about lessening human death. Then nothing will lessen human death than being anti-war. Or your single policy has something to do with guns. Okay, but what principle is that about? And a lot of people's principle is about individual liberty. Okay, would you say your principle of individual liberty is above lessening human death? If it's yes, then right on. You're following your principles. That is your number one priority. But if it isn't, then you've picked as your number one policy something that does not align with your number one principle. If you're just going to have one, make sure it aligns with your number one principle. Otherwise, you're not going to be doing the good that you want to be doing. It's not even about being a hypocrite or what others will think of you. If you ultimately want to do the most amount of good for your principle, doing anything else that's not related to your number one principle will hurt your principle. So then you ended up doing nothing for the thing you cared most about. So essentially, we have to stop electing leaders like we do with pro wrestlers. You can't go by a cult of personality. No. And in fact, politicians shouldn't even have fans. We shouldn't be fans of politicians. We should criticize and be skeptical and wary of all politicians, regardless of what party they are. 
because they serve us and we're the ones who keep them in line and make sure they do end up serving us. And secondly, nobody can be in charge of our policies other than us. We have to tell them what we want enacted and then they do it. We pick them to be the ones to enact the things we want. That means we have to tell them what they want. It's not supposed to be the other way where they tell us what they want and then they have us supporting their main causes. So sticking with the pro wrestling analogy, the fans tell the wrestlers what they want to see in the way they're cheering, booing, or we straight up yell it out. Whenever a wrestler tells us what we're supposed to do or think, that's when they're the bad guy. It's not that anybody taught us that. It's our natural inclination. Somebody tells us what to do or think, and we just don't like it. Yet in politics, for whatever reason, that switch has turned off, and we want them to do this to us. And it's like, what the fuck? We tell you what we want and what you're supposed to do, and you go and do it. That's why we elected you. That's how a democracy works. In a dictatorship, you tell us what to do, and we go and do it. But then again, if we go way back, there were actually people who were called monarchists who wanted monarchs, and then there were the people who wanted to bring down monarchs and have it be a democracy where it's run by the people. But that type of mindset hasn't gone away. You will always have a group that wants monarchs and dictators and a group that doesn't. And what parties represent that will change over time. But historically, if we go back to Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, where really everything we know as the left and right started, the right were the monarchists and the left were kind of the anarchists, the ones who wanted things decentralized, the ones who wanted things to be run by the people. Doesn't mean throughout history that hasn't changed or based on region that hasn't changed. Like, yes, Stalin, who represented left ideals, but he ran things like a monarchist. And you saw that in other places also. During Lincoln's time, the Republicans were the liberals and the Democrats were the conservatives. So like I said, it gets confusing if you try to rely on the names of the teams. Forget about the names because that changes. What stays consistent over time are the principles. Stick to the principles and then vary your team. Or even in your lifetime, you might have to change your team based on your principles. But don't do it because you change your principles. Don't do it because you used to think we have to lessen all human suffering to we just have to lessen suffering for this certain group of people, even if that means increasing the suffering of these other people. But you tend to come up with the best principles when you're most idealistic. And that tends to be when you're younger because principles should be idealistic. It doesn't mean that everything will align with your principles and we'll live in a utopia. That just means that's what your aim is. So your aim should always be the truest, understanding that we'll never get there. If you compromise your principles to something much, much lower, then you'll be okay with something much, much worse. You shouldn't be idealistic about everything, but principles, yes. Because you understand it's a principle. It's not necessarily attainable. That's why that should be the most idealistic. And what is idealism? It's something better than what we've got. And so having principles that are idealistic keeps pushing the arc of history towards progress. If principles themselves become non-idealistic and something very, very conservative, then we're going to go nowhere or we're going to go backwards.
And that's what you're actually hearing a lot. Let's go backwards. It's what's called reactionary politics, where we should go back to the way things were during the times of monarchs. So in a nutshell, it would be more principles, less personality. In a nutshell, yes. To quote a pro wrestler, Stone Cold Steve Austin said, DTA, don't trust anybody. And it's true. Don't trust your politicians. Don't trust your parties. Don't trust your tribe. Trust your own principles and tell them what you believe in and what you want to see enacted.